0: I'm reading in the 10th chapter of Mark, beginning at the 17th verse. I'm going to read through the 23rd. Now as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. One of the nice things about summer is revisiting places that are familiar to us and beloved by us. Many of us have done that. Many of us will do that before the season is over. And we do that from time to time with scripture. This is one of my favorite texts in the New Testament. I enjoy talking about it. I think it has important lessons and challenges for us. And so I'd like to take those of you who have been with me for a while back to this passage and take a fresh look if you would. When I read this story, there's a picture that appears on the screen of my imagination. I'm sure that's true for you also, although What you see may not be exactly the same thing that I see. This story is found in each of the synoptic gospels. It's found here. It's found in uh, Matthew 19 and in Luke 18. In all three, it appears in the same historical context. It immediately follows that familiar story in which we read that young believing parents brought children small enough to carry in their arms to Jesus seeking his blessing a passage that is very important to us because it forms part of the scriptural foundation for our position regarding the baptism of infants and children. And then all three of the first three Gospels, it is followed by Jesus' last passage through the city of Jericho which allows us to know that Jesus' life is coming to an end. He has just weeks to minister and to breathe and to enjoy his friends and be enjoyed by them before he would die. As I see this happening, there's a crowd that has assembled. Wherever Jesus went, particularly late in his life, there were always crowds of people where he was and following him almost wherever he went. And that was the case here. And as so often the case, Jesus probably took time teaching them, explaining the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven to them. He probably took time to heal at least some of the sick that were among them. And we know that he took time to take these little children in his arms and give them his blessing. There's a crowd. In the midst of that crowd, we see Jesus. Somewhere on the fringe of that crowd, I see this man we've come to know as the rich young ruler. He seems antsy. He seems edgy about something. He, he stands first leaning on one foot and then the other as if he's trying to see and to hear better. At times, he seems almost to raise his voice to make a statement or ask a question, but something perhaps not being sure how to say what he wants to say, or perhaps the fear of being embarrassed causes him to remain in his silence. The quality of his clothing identify him as being among the wealthy class of Jews. There might be something on his clothing, some mark, some insignia of some kind that would indicate his stature among the local citizenry. As he shifts his weight, as he appears on the brink of speaking and then falls back into silence, as he so often does, Jesus makes a gesture or says a word that indicates to the crowd that their time together has ended. And in effect, he dismisses this crowd. The crowd stays. They, they mill around. They talk to one another. They slowly move off in various directions. As I see this scene, the young man is standing on one side of the crowd, and when Jesus leaves, he walks quickly away in the opposite direction, up or down the road. He's walking with purpose. Jesus is. He's walking like a man with a destination. He's walking like a man With a mission. We would not know at that time, but we know now that his mission was to go to Jerusalem and do what God the Father had sent him to do. The man is suddenly seized by resolution of some kind, and he pushes his way through the crowd. He steps around those who are standing, and he hurries off at last, literally running to catch up with Jesus as he makes his way away. And when he reaches Jesus, he stops in front of him on the road, kneels in his presence, and he asks him a question. That question, the dialogue that it triggered, the Lord's final instructions to the man, and the man's response to those final instructions become the familiar story of this one we have learned to call the rich young ruler. This story is an excellent example of how our understanding of one part of the Bible informs our understanding of other parts of the Bible. If you were going to teach a Sunday school class on the harmony of scripture, you would use this text possibly as your text because we find it in three different locations. In each of these locations, we are given details that we do not find elsewhere, not with the result that one story contradicts another, but with the result that all of them together give us a much fuller picture of who this man was and what happened. All report to us that he came to Jesus a rich man. All of them tell us that he left Jesus a sad man. Luke alone tells us that he was a ruler, but he doesn't tell us what he was a ruler of. He might have been a ruling elder in the local synagogue. He may have been an official of some kind in local government. We're not told, but whatever it was, he was a man of influence, a man of authority, a man who was respected by others enough to be put into that position. Mark alone describes the man as running to catch up with Jesus as Jesus walked away, and then kneeling in his presence when he came to Jesus, and Mark alone tells us that Jesus loved this man. As you reflect on this piece of sacred history, I urge you to consider the importance of the statement that Jesus loved this young man. At first, we're inclined to say it doesn't mean anything at all because Jesus loved everybody. But I urge you to read through the Gospels. I urge you to have a blank piece of paper on one hand as you're reading. And I urge you to make a list of those passages in the Gospel where we are told particularly that Jesus loved a certain individual. One of those individuals is the author of the fourth Gospel, who identified himself not by name, but simply as that disciple whom Jesus loved. We read of the Lord's love for Mary and for her sister Martha. But other than these, I'm aware of no other passage in the New Testament that tells us that Jesus loved a particular individual other than the one that is open before us. And I trust that you might agree that that is a very significant observation that we have to factor into our efforts to answer questions about this man's relationship with God and the state of his soul. Many claim that he came within a hair's breadth of salvation. He came to the right man, he came with the right question, but when he was told what the cost of salvation would be, he was either unable or unwilling to pay it, and he slinkered back into the darkness from which he had come, never to emerge again. That, in fact, is the common view of this rich young ruler. I think that there are many evidences in the story itself that he was indeed born again and that you and I will see his radiant face as he will see ours when we surround the throne of God in everlasting glory. I'd like to repeat my reasons for this conclusion with you, and I'd like to add something new to our discussion. One of the reasons I believe that this young man was saved was the posture that he assumed. He didn't walk quickly to Jesus like a man in authority calling after him to, Wait, I have something to say to you. Instead, we are told that he ran after Jesus until he caught up with Jesus. And then we're told that when he did catch up with Jesus, he didn't walk around ahead of him on the road, put his hand on Jesus' chest to stop him and say, just a minute, I have a matter I'd like to discuss with you. Instead, we're told that he knelt in Jesus' presence. Again, read through the Gospels and show me a single time when we are told that an unbeliever ran to Jesus and knelt in his presence and I assure you that you will find none. This posture, this running, this kneeling are suggestions of the reality of his faith and his sincerity. But when we consider how he behaved with respect to Jesus, it causes me to ask a question of myself and perhaps you of you as well. And the question is basically, what do we do when we are pressed by the serious questions of life or threatened by its circumstances? do we stand alone facing them, confident in our own strength? Do we walk through them passively, humming "Karah, Sirrah" to ourselves? Or do we rush to Jesus and throw ourselves at His feet and blurt out our questions and our fears to Him? I'd like to suggest to you that this is what the most mature of Christians would do. A mature Christian would not rely on his own strength or his own wisdom. A mature Christian would not simply shrug his shoulders in the face of some threatening circumstance or question. A mature Christian, as this young man did, would rush to Jesus and throw himself at Jesus' feet and there ask his question and profess his needs and wait eagerly for the Lord to speak. Another of the reasons that I believe that the rich young ruler was saved is simply the nature of the question that he asked. I said that this encounter occurred near the end of Jesus' life. And that means that if at that time you and I were to take a public opinion survey, we could find almost no one in all of Judaism in the Holy Land itself or scattered around the world who had not heard of Jesus. Speculation about him was rampant. On every hand, people were repeating to one another things that they had seen or heard or what others had said they had seen or heard about Jesus. The Jews were divided about him, but they certainly were not ignorant of him. And with increasing fervor and frequency, cleverly drafted questions were being taken to Jesus in public fora. Questions that were prompted not by a sincere desire to know the truth of God, but rather by the desire to embarrass Jesus, to ask him a question he couldn't answer, or to trap him with his own words. If this were the purpose of this young man's question. He would have asked it while the crowd was still together in order to impress the largest number possible with his own wisdom and cunning. But instead, he waited until he was alone with Jesus and Jesus' disciples to ask his question. This man whose rule might well have been exercised in a religious context could easily have brought to Jesus one of the other questions that we have become familiar with. It could have been a political question, like he should have said, Lord, I want to know what you say about this. Is it right for us as Jews to pay taxes to Caesar, or is it not? There were others who would ask that question very soon. It could have been a theological question. Lord, of all of the laws that God has given to us as his covenant people, which do you consider to be the most important? It could have been a moral question about seven brothers who sequentially married the same woman and then died, and then in heaven, whose wife will she be? But instead of any of these, or any like these, his question was a very personal one. It was a question that involved not the great religious and moral issues of the time and place, but the safety and the survival of his own soul. It's the question of a man who desperately wanted to be right with God, one with God. A man who wanted to know the mercy of God. And how can this be? Not for all of these people, not for the distant Romans and Gentiles, but for me, was his question. This man's view of God and reality were shaped by the word of God. In our culture, Not many people seem concerned about their souls. The common assumption in our land is that God loves everybody, that God forgives everybody, and at the the instant of death, God stands at the doors to his everlasting kingdom to welcome everybody. In the mind of the average American, there will be no judgment, there is no hell, The mercy of God is greater than the worst of our sins. Therefore, this young man's question is virtually never asked in our time. But he had a different understanding of who God and reality are. He believed in the love and the mercy of God, but he also believed in the holiness and the justice and the wrath of God. He believed in the reality of heaven, But he also believed in the reality of hell. Unlike our average neighbor, he didn't believe that all God expects of us is a kind of moral and religious mediocrity, but remembered that God had said, as I am holy, so you must be holy. And his greatest concern in life was not his standing with men, but his standing with God. Unsure of that, and wanting above all else to be able to say with David, I will dwell forever in the house of God, he brought this question about eternal life to Jesus. This indicates to me that he was deeply sincere in his inquiry, a fact that influences my thinking about his standing with God. And a third reason already alluded to is Mark's statement that Jesus loved this young man. It may surprise you to hear that nowhere in Scripture are we told that Jesus loves all people. John 3.16 expresses the love of God for the world order that he had created, but it is not a declaration of divine love for every human being that lives in that divine order. In John 15, the Lord expresses his love for his disciples in general when he says, No greater love has this than any man than to lay down his life for his friends. But expressions of Jesus' love for individuals is limited to a very few. As I said, John refers to himself as that disciple whom Jesus loved. And we know without doubting that John was saved. In John, we read of the Lord's love for Martha and her sister Mary, And we are assured that they were saved. And now in Mark, that we read that Jesus loved this rich young ruler. A statement of far greater weight and significance that is understood by those with only a passing knowledge of the gospel. And a good reason for us to argue for this man's salvation. The man asked about eternal life, Jesus responded by making reference to the law. The Old Testament never presents the law of God as a means of salvation. It's very important that we understand that. The New Testament never indicates that God gave his law to provide people a way to win his acceptance by their obedience. But both the Old Testament and the New Testament speak consistently of law as being an answer to the question, what does the Lord do? Your God require of you. The law was not a means of salvation. It was a guide to holy living for those who already experienced the salvation of God. Those in our time who want sincerely to know how God wants us to live are well advised to study the law in the Old Testament. This young man wasn't satisfied with this, however. It isn't that he rejected it, in fact, he believed it, but he didn't find in the law that which his soul craved. It goes almost without saying that our religious beliefs are influenced by our religious environment. But we need to be reminded that our religious feelings are also influenced by that environment. A rich young man in our time has spent all of his life in an Arminian or a Wesleyan church. One where the singing is boisterous, the people are faithful, and the fellowship is sweet. But one where it is taught that salvation is a gift that God offers to us. We reach out by faith and grasp that gift, but if we lose our grip, we lose our salvation. This young man believes all of the things that Christians everywhere believe his mind is saturated with scripture, his heart with worship. But every night when he lays his head upon his pillow, the theology of his church forces him to wonder, will I still believe these things tomorrow? And he lacks the assurance of salvation and the peace that assurance gives. The young man in our story had spent all of his religious time with people who believe that by keeping the law as best we can, we can win salvation as a kind of prize from the hand of God. But he knew from his own experience that he was utterly incapable of fully keeping that law. And he had no assurance of salvation because he had been misinformed about the nature and the source and the means of salvation. The law was given to guide our lives and relationships. It is the law that causes our consciences to come alive and prompts us to pray over and over, not simply on the morning of the Lord's day, forgive us our debts. But the law cannot, by definition, give the assurance of salvation. This is the byproduct of faith. This is the result of preaching the mercy of God, whether in the times of the Old Testament or today. There was little mercy preached among the Jews of the first century, and this resulted in this young man's lack of peace. Jesus said to him, with a voice of compassion and love, there's one thing that you lack. Go and sell what you have. Give the proceeds to the poor, and then come and be my disciple, and you will have the peace that you seek. It's important that we understand that these words were spoken only to that man. We sometimes wonder what God requires of us, and we should, we must. You must wonder, I must wonder, not just once in a lifetime, but continually, what does God require of me? Does Christ require this kind of sacrifice and lifestyle abandonment of all who follow him? And the answer is perhaps he does, and the answer is maybe he doesn't. It is not a matter of stated biblical principle, but rather it's a matter of individual prayer and conscience and discovery. You and I need to be very, very careful that we don't lift the words of Scripture out of their historical personal context and apply them to people they're not intended to be applied to. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes of his fear of misrepresenting God. You and I should be as cautious as we strive to represent him to one another. At this point, the Lord indicates that their conversation has ended, and we're told the men went away very sad, for he was very wealthy. He disappears into the fog of silence, and we read nothing more of him. This leaves us with the haunting question, what became of him? I've already referred to the speculation, many believing that the cost of discipleship was too high and that he was unwilling or unable to pay it. I believe, as you have heard me say before, that he was sad because he was going away to have a garage sale, that he was going to do exactly what Jesus told him he had to do, but he was certainly not happy about it as you and I would not be happy about it. To the extent that this is important to you, you need to decide for yourselves what became of this young man. But as you wrestle with the question, I urge you to carefully examine all of the evidence that is found in the historical records and not just a part of it. The story ends with Jesus saying to his disciples how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And in this, there are two important lessons for you and for me. The first of these has to do with our speculation about why it would be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The rich are often very intelligent, very capable, very ambitious, and focused people. Self confident to begin with, they're likely, as success is followed by success, to become self reliant and proud. Jesus says that the first steps to knowing God are acknowledging our spiritual poverty, deeply grieving that condition and meekness. None of these qualities are natural to many of the wealthy and powerful among the children of men. Jesus taught that the key to the mercy and acceptance of God is coming before him with these words on our trembling lips, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And these words tend to choke in the throats of those who stand high in the rankings of men. A possible lesson in this for you and for me who are rich and have lofty standing in life is that if this describes you, or if this describes your ambitions in life, you need to understand that the very qualities that destine you for success in time could very well lead to the destruction of your soul in eternity. And the gospel urges you to seek humility from the Spirit of God, that you might become one of those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and that by the grace and mercy of God you might be satisfied in time and that you might be satisfied in eternity. But there's another lesson in this observation of Jesus about the difficulty the rich experience in entering the kingdom of God. If this observation is still valid, and we have absolutely no reason to doubt that it is, it means that most of the wealthy, powerful, important, and influential people in our culture are strangers to our God. It means that most of the faces we see regularly on the screens of our television sets, most of the voices we hear on the radio, most of the opinions we read in newspapers and magazines and books, most of those in high places of business and industry and government and education are not citizens of the kingdom of God. They do not love our God. They are not trusting our savior. It means that most of those people who are most likely to have our respect, most likely to have an influence on our views, most apt to be those we'd most like to be like, are unbelievers. In their news reports and editorials, in their documentaries on television, in their panel discussions, in their coaching sections, in their classrooms, the name and religion of Jesus Christ are completely ignored. And this widespread marginalization of our faith has the a subtle effect of, we, of weakening our commitment to it and robbing us of much of its joy and satisfaction. Paul wrote to Christians who were beginning to understand how lonely they were in the alien culture of an unbelieving world and he said, you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And Paul also said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds in order that you might know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As Christians, we live in an alien and a hostile environment. The world hates our God and despises his Son. In this time when the tide of open opposition to our faith is rising, may we, like this rich young man, rush to Jesus again and again, throw ourselves at his feet, in total trust and obeisance, listening to his word, and then rising to do his bidding. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this familiar description of a meeting of your son with the rich young ruler. We thank you for the satisfaction of discussing it, and we pray as we continue to think about it that you would lead us to conclusions that honor you and are pleasing in your sight but remind us our god of the lesson here that we indeed live in an alien world the world will never be run to christ one to christ the world is a place of darkness and it is dark not because of its ignorance because of its love of the darkness we pray that you would protect us and our children and all that we love from its poisonous influence help us to be bright lights in the darkness help us to be faithful to you in all things Draw us again and again to rush to your Son and throw ourselves at his feet, that he might take us by the hand and cause us to stand. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.